0: The WealthManagement.com Advisor Innovations Podcast is sponsored by LPL. As financial advice continues to evolve, LPL is at the forefront. Whether it's growing your RIA or building an independent practice, advisors can pick the business model, services, technology, and product mix that best meets their clients' needs. As a top wealth management firm 100% dedicated to advisor success, LPL looks forward to learning how they can help you build your tomorrow today. For information and show notes go visit lpl.com advisor innovation greetings everyone and thanks for joining us this is the advisor innovations podcast the inaugural advisor innovations podcast i'm david armstrong editor-in-chief of wealthmanagement.com and i'm here with mindy diamond mindy diamond our first guest mindy thanks very much for joining us
1: oh i'm so excited to be here and even more honored and excited to be your first guest
0: Yeah, it's great. And I thought, you know, when we launched this podcast, I thought, who better? Because in addition to for over 20 years, you and your team have helped financial advisors kind of navigate the job market, so to speak, finding the best homes for the practices. But more germane to this, you've been one of the longest running columnists in wealth management, previously rep, previously registered rep that we've had. So you've, you've been doing this for a long time.
1: Yes, yes. And I just have to tell you very quickly about 15 years ago, which is when I started writing my career moves column for wealth management and its predecessors, I had said to myself, there's nowhere that advisors can get objective advice about the one topic they all wanted to know, but were afraid to ask. What are the deals? Where are people going? Why are they going? I approached you and your predecessors and said, Can I write a column? the answer was a very a little bit tentative but an entrepreneurial sure why not here we are 15 years ago 15 years today and pretty excited about it
0: i don't think we've had a columnist that has been as consistent and as and i think as valuable to the publication as as you've Thank been you. so we really Thank appreciate that and that's why i thought this would be the great time to launch this podcast with you one you know because what we're trying to do here is is give advisors some notion of the landscape both the job landscape and the technical landscape technology investments, you know, what's what's innovative, what's new. Looking back, I mean, let's go back 20 years, 15 years ago, when you first started writing the column, when you first uh, started out in this industry, this is the big question, but what has been the greatest change you think that you have seen from 20 years ago to today in the advisor landscape?
1: The landscape itself has changed a lot in terms of the waterfall of possibilities having really expanded, meaning the numbers and kinds of options that advisors have to choose from has really grown. And it's gone from either you went from, if you were at Morgan Stanley, the options were to go to UBS or whatever it was, Payne Weber in those days, or Merrill or Wells Fargo or what was Smith Barney, or you stayed put. But today, it's as valid for an advisor to go to a regional firm that has really stepped up in terms of the deals they're writing and really made their platforms more robust and competitive for sure. It's as valid to go independent. It's as valid to go to First Republic or Rockefeller or a boutique firm of its lake. But the thing I think that's driving the movement the most is the change in advisor mindset what's important to advisors, what they value, what motivates them is very different than it once was 20 years ago.
0: And then how how so? What's, what's, what is the change in motivation?
1: Well, about 23 years ago or so when I started the business the number one question people asked was what's the deal and even you know when I would call an advisor I'd lead with hey there's a you know a hot deal morgan stanley is paying x i cringe now when i think about that one because no advisor should ever move just because of the deal and two because how transactional and salesy that sounds but what i will tell you is that in the last 20 years or so, what's changed is that advisors have gone from only valuing the short-term upside, how much are you going to pay me in a deal up front, to really valuing freedom, flexibility, and control. And they will—they have proven, advisors have proven, that they will forgo the biggest deal in order to get more freedom, flexibility, and control. You get maximum freedom, flexibility, and control in the independent space but if you think about the landscape as a horizontal line going left to right, the wirehouses and big banks are all the way to the left, and full on independence is all the way to the right, and lots in between. And each tick further you go right on that continuum, the advisor can get more freedom, flexibility, and control.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about that uh, spectrum a little bit, because I think it used to be, even when I first started writing about the space, that uh, the wirehouse advisor was seen as. Yeah, they 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 made the most money. They were the biggest advisors, the biggest pots of assets. But they were kind of salesmen at the tail end of Wall Street. Was that a perception that was not correct, or or at one time was that correct?
1: Yeah, when I started the business, that was sort of the tail end of that of that perception that you know wirehouses sold proprietary products and their advisors were shills for selling pushing those products. In the last couple of decades, I think that perception has really changed and really changed. And that's, you know, when you say what are the things that's changed the most, that's the fact that advisors have gone from salespeople to fee-based or fee-only fiduciaries is another enormous change, obviously.
0: Yeah. And that's interesting to me. And, and let me throw this uh, out. You talk about that uh, horizon or that line from warehouse to independent on one side and everything in between there's still, people talk about this in terms of on, on the, on the captured side of that uh, line, you're doing commission based business and on the free side of that line, independent side of that line, you're doing a uh, uh, fee based advice. And that's not, this is not true anymore. Right. I mean, Oh, for sure. Not
1: true. Yeah. I get, mean- the majority of Wirehouse advisors or advisors that sit as employees of a brokerage firm, and whether that be Wirehouse regional firm or anything else, are majority fee based, some fee only, actually, few fee only, but majority, you know, 99% fee based, 70% fee based and the they retain their series 7 and the ability to do commission based business more as an accommodation than as the core of the business very often though when an advisor moves from the wirehouse world to the independent space they will do so with an eye toward becoming fee only giving up series 7 giving up finra oversight and becoming a true fiduciary
0: we see that mix is is growing, and I think the, the fee-based revenue at the, the warehouses and, and the regionals and independent broker-dealers has surpassed their commission-based business.
1: For sure. Well, and yeah. that's the point. So you wouldn't choose a model, an affiliation model, based upon fee-based versus commission-based. You choose it based on how you want to live your business life and how you want to run your business.
0: Right, and I guess I, I bring this up only because there still seems to be a perception, even inside the industry, mostly coming from the independent space, that we're the RIA, we're the we're the fee based uh, uh, advisor. We we've got the angel wings; those people over there on the warehouse side, they're the brokers, and they're they wear the devil's hat. And and it just it's it surprises me that that's still a perception even inside the industry. Do you do you encounter that still?
1: Yeah, n- not so much. I think that. The representatives of the independent space will may paint a picture that we are the true fiduciaries. We have the angel wings. We're the only ones that, you know, the only place where you can really serve clients the way they want to be served without having to serve some corporate overlord. But the thing of it is, the independent space is recruiting heavily from the traditional space. The vast majority of the wins that the independent space are seeing these days come from the broker-dealer world. It's hypocritical. It's disingenuous to say, we're the only ones practicing the right way, and you're the devil. I don't think that's what they mean at all. I think what they mean is you have been working in an environment where you are limited, where you are not able to always put the client's best interests first and come be independent so that you can do so with more freedom and control. But I don't think that they believe, nor are they saying that a wirehouse advisor is the devil incarnate.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm it's hyperbole a little bit, Mindy. You got to give me a little license. For yeah, little no, 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 hyperbole. no. Of
1: course, I believe me. I that's not out of left field because you're a hundred percent right. That not that long ago, that belief that a wirehouse advisor was the devil and the only good people were independents. That's that's not such an old myth. But I don't think that that's true anymore.
0: Yeah, and particularly as these uh, uh, platforms have changed a little bit, and and. What I'm seeing, and, and I would love your take on this, particularly in the independent broker-dealer space, but also in the in the warehouse space and, and perhaps in the regional, as they move more towards fiduciary fee-based advice, uh, they're creating platforms for that kind of practice in a way that kind of resembles a lot of the almost custodial platforms on the independent side, right? I mean, do you have this thing where it's kind of coming around full circle? And I mean, look at Wells Fargo has a platform yep. for only advisors commonwealth too, lpl these platforms are changing and it seems they're not trying to so much adhere to regulatory structures as much as they are trying to adhere to a business structure for the advisor and do we need to then kind of change the nomenclature right i mean what is lpl are they a broker dealer well they'll tell you they're also a custodian and you know they're one of the largest studies right does the old nomenclature of Wirehouse, independent broker dealer ria anymore?
1: Well, the old nomenclature is outdated. I mean, even just the term wirehouse referred to a bunch of people sitting in a in a room years ago and it doesn't fit, but it's nonetheless how the industry sort of defines itself in buckets if you will. But to your point about the independent broker dealer world and how they've morphed is that it started out as a defensive measure, so let's take Wells Fargo, which is one of the earliest adapters of this multi channel affiliation model. And it was really because it was a way of stabbing off attrition. It was a defensive move. We're worried about losing our biggest teams to independence or some version of independence. So we'll just build it right under our own umbrella. That is definitely what LPL did and Commonwealth and Raymond James and all the other firms that have multi affiliation models. It's a good thing because it means that if you look at LPL and you like their ecosystem, that somewhere within it, you're very likely to find your home. It was a smart move, not only for LPL or Wells Fargo or Raymond James or Commonwealth or any other firm that has multi affiliations, but also for the clients who are more likely to get the right kind of service from their advisor and certainly for the advisors. What I will say though is, is that the the broker dealer space has really morphed. One of the things I think to be aware of is, so Goldman Sachs is there's news that they are building an RIA custody model. They've recruited some heavy hitters from the RIA custodial space. And sometime in the near future, they're going to launch an RIA custodial model. That raises all sorts of questions, great for the industry because the notion of Goldman Sachs, you know, a premier name associated with ultra high net worth clients will come into the custodial space, will make more ultra high net worth or private wealth advisors excited about independence. That's a great thing. But it also raises the questions, will Morgan and UBS and Merrill launch uh, an independent option. And I have my thoughts on that, which I'm happy to share with you.
0: Yeah, please do. Because I, I think the Goldman thing is going to be really interesting.
1: I think it's going to be really interesting. I do. And how much they're able to really compete with the the long tried and true custodians like Schwab, Fidelity, and Pershing in that order is remains to be seen. But I don't know that they need to. I think it'll be a boutique, a great boutique custodial option. And I think that they'll do well. But again, it raises the question, will Morgan or UBS or Merrill do it? I think that they'd be lying if they told us that they hadn't thought about any one of those firms thought about launching an independent option. I mean, when they lose advisors, they are more often than not losing it to a version of more independence, whether that be a Rockefeller or First Republic or full on independence. They have to be paying attention to it. But the prevailing thought from the leaders of those firms is that to do so would cannibalize our private client group, and they don't want to do that. From an advisor perspective, advisors say, do it. Launch an independent option, and we would be yours for life. We have no interest in leaving. It's easier to stay than to go, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But what advisors should know is that even if a firm, let's say UBS launched an independent option, and there was some talk years ago that they would, that it would be an independent broker dealer option as opposed to an RIA option. And what that means is certainly an advisor would have more independence. They'd be a 1099, they'd own their business in a way they don't as an employee, a W-2 employee of UBS, but it still means that they are limited to the inventory of product and service and technology and infrastructure and compliance oversight that the traditional W-2 employees have. Same as it is Wells Fargo Finet versus Wells Fargo private client group. The independent broker dealer model can be more independent and quite honestly, independent enough for some, mm-hmm. but it's not as independent as the really entrepreneurial advisor that wants complete autonomy and entrepreneurial freedom would have in the RIA space.
0: Right. So, it, uh, and and we don't know what Goldman's offer is going to look like yet, but you're suggesting that uh, uh, these large firms won't be able to have the kind of the open architecture for the RIA space the way that a Schwab or a Fidelity might.
1: It's hard to believe that they will. Let's I mean, Mm -hmm. we just don't know what they're building. It's hard to believe that they will. And then it raises the question, so if they do that, will Goldman allow their PWA's private wealth advisors, which was what Goldman calls their advisors, to slide, if you will, from the private client group into independence? Wells Fargo has, or at least had a tariff that they charge, a hefty tariff for an advisor to, to slide from one to the other, because otherwise everybody would do it. Right, right. They, who right. wouldn't want to be independent if you could do so with impunity and without hassle?
0: Right, right. It's a, it's a, in a way, kind of a compensation thing, right? I mean, it's of course you want to control your own destiny, you want to control your own practice, but clearly not every advisor would do that. You tell me. You talk to advisors every day. What, what prompts an advisor to want to leave the, the, the comforts of what traditionally might be considered the wirehouse? and go towards independence. I, you know, we've talked about this a lot. Have, have those pain points or or pushes have that changed at all over the over the years?
1: Yeah, well, the word pushes is a good one because it's almost always it should be anyway about pushes and pulls. The advisor that's only leaving because they're in pain and running away from something almost always doesn't find him or herself in a better place than when they started. So, in my opinion, the best moves are based based upon pushes and pulls, and hopefully as many or greater number of pulls than pushes. So the pushes are the frustrations, the things that are limiting or thwarting them, and to the extent to which they impact their ability to grow their business and serve their clients and get it done. Those pushes are things like lack of control or decreasing amount of control, desire for more freedom, messing with payout, too much bureaucracy, not feeling they're getting enough value from their firm, being forced to do certain things in order to to maintain payout, feeling a certain level of incongruence between their goals and the firm's goals and many others. But the pulls are things like being excited to be something you can't where you are, building an independent firm, being a partner in a firm, getting equity, having a voice in a firm, getting more freedom and control over how you customize things and how you serve clients, being able to go to another firm. And for example, an advisor moving from Merrill Lynch to Morgan Stanley will be excited by the fact that Merrill is a bank owned firm and Morgan is a wealth management firm that owns a bank. And while that may sound sort of kind of So what's the difference? It's a huge difference. One is sort of rooted in an entrepreneurial culture and one not. Those pulls need to be, or should be, in my opinion, be as big as the pushes, if not greater. And then, of course, you know, the economics need to make sense. And I have my own opinion about whether you should move just because you want to monetize. But the economics do need to make sense no matter what.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and I and I suspect I, you've said before, you know, no one should move just for the money, but the money plays a role, right? And and particularly as, as advisors are looking for ways to monetize their practice and ride off into the sunset, these things do have have some weight. How do you talk to advisors when they come to you and say, yeah, listen, I know it's not all about the money, but there, that's a, that's an important part. I mean,
1: yeah, well, I tell them first and foremost that. Even though they may be asking me about the deal or the the economics of a move, that my hope is that what's really driving the move is a desire to do it better, to serve clients better, to build a better mousetrap that will ultimately serve the clients and all constituents better. And most would agree with that. Mm-hmm. But still in all, it's naive to think that the deal or the economics don't matter. So one of the first things we talk about is, are you more concerned about short-term upside or more concerned about building an enterprise, big picture, long-term? That question helps to determine whether somebody is looking to be an employee again, and if so, with what kind of firm, or building an independent firm and maximizing enterprise value. So, So sort of what they look at and where they go is determined by the answers to those questions. But the other thing is, is to really say to them that, The economics matter, and nobody understands that and respects that more than me because it is a hassle and disruptive for an advisor to move. And they should expect to be compensated in some way for that disruption. But if it's the only reason for the move, clients can smell through that, can feel that any day of the week. So the move really should be done for the benefit of clients. And that's why we advise that in a due diligence process or an exploration process, the advisor needs to first really get a sense of what another firm can offer them. What is it that this firm is about? What does it stand for? And how will it help me to better serve my clients? What's in it for me if I move and what's in it for my clients if I move? But even before that, If they're working with us, we take advisors through a strategic, thoughtful self-assessment, if you will, because we believe that it's critical for an advisor to understand, be clear about his goals, to be clear about her expectations, her vision, where there are gaps between where they are and where they want to go, et cetera. And the clearer they can be about what's important to them and what utopia looks like and how on the same page they are with their clients and what their succession needs are, et cetera, et cetera, the more likely they are to find the right option. And that the third step in the process is understanding the economics. And it's done in that order for a reason, because the economics shouldn't drive it. We tell people you need to fall in love with an opportunity for the opportunity. And then let's make sure the economics makes sense. It's not that we say, you know, we're not expecting anybody not to not to care about the economics. That's naive and silly, but it shouldn't be the driving factor or the first factor you consider.
0: Right, right. It's not uh, jumping at the, the top dollar, the dangling dollar, and getting people to jump that way. In the traditional wirehouse world, I mean, you've seen some changes there. And uh, some of the firms, I think like uh, Merrill, for instance, are no longer paying recruiting bonuses, right? I mean, they're not even dangling the dollars at all. Is yeah. that true?
1: Merrill just is an anathema to me and everyone on the street who kind of is paying attention to it. It's anathema because they've had a ton of attrition. They're the firm where top advisors are leaving the most. They're the firm that had the most attrition, even though they won't cop to that. They're not recruiting to replace that top talent. So at some point, I'm not quite sure how that works for them. But it's also anathema because they're still in the protocol the protocol for broker recruiting. And the purpose of the protocol is to help a firm to recruit. They stay in the protocol to because they plan to recruit more than they expect to lose. But in the case of Merrill, they're losing a lot of advisors and they're not recruiting. We've been, been saying to Merrill advisors for the longest time, if you know you have a move in you, it absolutely benefits you. To think about doing it sooner rather than later not as a sales pitch but because it's infinitely less risky and better to move with protocol protection than without it and merrill could ostensibly pull out of protocol it doesn't make sense for them to stay in so merrill could pro- pull out of protocol at any point so if you know you're going to move do it with protocol protection
0: gotcha and what about the other, other uh three warehouses are they still paying recruiting
1: bonuses? Uh, very much so. They've all tried their hand, particularly Morgan and UBS, of pulling a Merrill and being out of it. But it's un- they found it to be unsustainable. They lose advisors, they're not replacing them, and that's just not sustainable. So they are back. The race for top talent is more competitive than it's ever been. And Morgan, UBS, and Wells are very aggressively competing. The fact that There are more options for top advisors to consider. The fact that today independents and firms like Rockefeller and First Republic and regional firms like RBC and Raymond James and Stiefel are winning as much as Morgan Stanley is just keeps Morgan Stanley and UBS honest. They have to continue to pay top deals or they're not going to win.
0: Yeah, what's going on in the regional space is kind of interesting, right? I mean, RBC has really ramped up their game, right?
1: Yep. Well, firm, the leaders at firms like RBC and Raymond James and Stiefel Nicholas have looked at this global disenfranchisement. That Wirehouse advisors have been feeling too much bureaucracy, loss of control, incongruence with you know, between their goals and the firm's goals, et cetera. And the regional firms really saw that as an opportunity. So what they did was step up their platform, step up their human capital, step up their technology get more competitive on deals so that instead of being the also Rams or the second choice or the place that only the four or $500,000 advisor went, but not the $3 million team, none of that is true anymore. They have absolutely leveled the playing field. And for, for advisors that feel that going independent is a bridge too far, and moving from UBS to Morgan Stanley is nothing more than a lateral move, as a lot of us tell us. The regional firms can be a really good choice.
0: What about in the on the independent side? We have these platforms uh, uh, coming together, as as we've talked about. What would prompt an advisor to move there? I, if, for instance, I, I think. When I first started here, the 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 big thought was the breakaway broker, right? Everyone leaving the wirehouses, going independent, and then I think that was overplayed a little bit. I mean, I think uh, the traditional banks would tell you, well, they were the ones that we didn't want around here in the first place, right? They weren't the they weren't the, the big producers, so fine, let them go. That and that's probably wrong too. But now I think more of the advisor movement is happening kind of over on gradations of you know the right hand side of your line, the the independent side of your line, right? Uh, we're seeing more. Uh, you know, independent broker dealer teams moving to RIAs or tell me about what's going on over there that you see.
1: The breakaway broker movement, was a bigger deal or probably heard we heard the term and, you know, sort of not that it was overplayed. I think there was a lot of pent up demand. There were a lot of advisors for years that were sitting in the traditional space that had entrepreneurial DNA that they couldn't they couldn't leverage, they couldn't exercise. So as the independent space, the ecosystem supporting what it means to be an independent advisor grew, it became more possible for a Wirehouse advisor or a brokerage firm advisor, employee advisor to go independent, to leverage pools of capital, to leverage the middle office and back office support and the, and the consulting support, the transition support that they needed. So there was a lot of pent up demand and a lot of movement. Today, what we see is still a whole lot of movement of of advisors particularly at the top of the food chain moving from the left side of the continuum to gradations of the right side and what's exciting and what's making it so much of a sellers market is that it's not just shades of black and white you're either a warehouse advisor or you're a fee only independent those gradations is the word you use it's a good word means that you can be a regional firm advisor and have a little more independence than you had at UBS or Merrill Lynch, but much less so. You don't have to build your firm from scratch. You can go to a First Republic or a Rockefeller or a Snowden Lane or a William Blair or a Jeffries, and get feel more independent because the firms are built on third-party custody options and advisors in many of those cases join as equity partners and you've got more freedom and control. But again, you're not building something from scratch. And then everything to the right of that midline is some version of independence. And because of how the the ecosystem supporting the independent space has evolved, it's much more likely, as I said, for an advisor to find his or her ideal version of independence, how much independence they want. So it's not a black and white, one size fits all. I'm either here or there. There's many gradations in between. And that's awesome for the industry as a whole, for advisors, for clients, for everybody.
0: Yeah. And it strikes me that the What maybe used to be the advisor in some way, shape, or form worked for the firm. Now it's almost like the firm is kind of working for the advisor in a way, (laughs) right? They're coming out with different options, different uh, affiliation models, and and technology too, right? Technology is really kind of driving a lot of this. I mean, it used to be such that a, you know, a a quote-unquote captured advisor, I don't know if I like that term, but would be limited to the tools that the home office had available, and if they wanted to do something for a client, whether it's like a structured product or a security based loan or something, it's like, yeah, yeah, maybe we'll get around to it, you know, and, you know, keep bugging us and, and we'll, we'll give you an answer. And then over on the other side, the process is that it's just, it's now all open and free Technology has enabled so much of this stuff to happen that there really isn't an advantage to being in that captured environment anymore, correct? I mean, you can do pretty much everything for your client that you want to over on the independent side that you could do on the captured side and, and probably with more options.
1: So that's exactly right. The playing field has been leveled and access to unique investment solutions, private and public, to special alternatives, to structured products, to lending in any form, to trust and estate services, insurance, et cetera, et cetera, can all be accessed on an open architecture basis, no matter where you sit. So what defines it for an advisor is how do you want to live your business life? Do I want to be a W-2 employee where it's plug and play and everything under one roof? Or do I want to be independent and access things on an a la carte basis?
0: So that's really what's driving the the decision that the advisor is making. Not so much, oh, I can get this over there and I can't get it here. It's how do I want to uh, live my professional life, I guess.
1: Well, the answer is yes. So I will say that many advisors... Operate under the false belief that to go independent or to separate from to leave one of the wirehouse firms and go anything further to the right means a sacrifice in terms of robust platform, in terms of solutions, in terms of technology, in terms of everything. That is absolutely a false belief. But it doesn't mean that every advisor should go independent or will be comfortable in an environment where instead of having it plug and play all under one umbrella, that they need to access it in a different way, oftentimes on an open architecture basis. And so it is not for everyone. I mean, I think, you know, I do a weekly podcast called Mindy Diamond on Independence. And my the second to last episode I just launched was why not go independent? The reasons why independence wouldn't be for someone. It's not, I recognize more than anyone, it's not for everyone, but it's all rooted in how flexible you are and how you want to live your business life.
0: Yeah. Can you give me just uh, some uh, color around that? When we talk about flexibility and how you live your business life, you know, we talk about the decisions an independent advisor has to make. There's more probably responsibility on their plate for deciding, making decisions around what the practice looks like, but increasingly that can be done. There can be kind of more of a plug and play environment on the independent side. Are there other factors that come into it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, your point is well taken that as this ecosystem supporting the independent space has grown, it's as easy or as likely for an advisor who's jazzed by what it means to be independent, wanting to be an entrepreneur, a business owner, et cetera, it's, it's easy enough for them to find the support that they need to insource or outsource that support so that they're living their business life the same way they are if they're an employee, because they've got somebody else to leverage or some other entity to leverage to manage compliance and oversight and all of it. but. The the real, I think, determining factor is one, whether you're short-term focused or long-term focused. So an independent advisor needs to be jazzed by or impassioned or emboldened by the notion of building an enterprise that can be either sold on the open market at some point or passed on to the next generation. So is jazzed by building equity and growing it is jazzed by the notion of adding inorganic growth to the mix, which can expand operating margins and leverage. And by inorganic growth, I mean recruiting an M&A. It's really about a long-term and entrepreneurial focus. So while, yes, I could outsource as an independent advisor, I don't have to deal with compliance or oversight or legal because either I've hired a COO or I've hired a consulting firm or third party to manage it for me. But still, the buck stops with me. I'm an entrepreneur. I own it whether or not I'm actually doing it myself. And not everybody has an appetite for that.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. As we kind of wrap things up here, I want to just go back a little bit to your business. Tell me, I don't think I've ever had this conversation with you. How did you come to be where you are?
1: (laughs) I love that question. I am an absolute accidental entrepreneur is how I would describe myself. Many uber entrepreneurial people wake up one day and say, oh my God, I have this great idea. I'm going to go start a business. I was not that way at all. So I'm an accountant by degree. I went and got a big eight public, dating myself. It was big eight public accounting job right out of college in 1984. I hated it. And I lasted eight months at Ernst and Winnie, and then went to work in private accounting for Lever Brothers. I hated that more. Only two years out of college, I was dejected and said, oh, I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing something I hate, but at least I'm going to do it closer to home. So I went to an accounting search firm in New Jersey. I had been working in New York at the time in New Jersey to try and find an accounting job closer to home. And the recruiter at the search firm that interviewed me said, oh, honey, you shouldn't be an accountant. Come be a recruiter, come work for us. And I thought she was an old lady at the time. In hindsight, she's probably my age now. But nonetheless, I, after a lot of encouragement from my husband, who's always been my greatest champion, he convinced me to try it, that I hated what I was doing and try it. And from the first day of being a recruiter in the accounting field, I just, I loved it. And I did that very successfully for about seven years, and then 23 or 24 years ago, I, we had been out for dinner with friends of ours, and our dear friend was a manager for flagship office at Morgan Stanley at the time, and he was talking about how there was a dearth of recruiters for financial advisors. And my husband, again, and our friend Ed, set out on a campaign to convince me to become a recruiter in this field. And I did. I started on my bedroom floor. Eventually I let my husband build an office in our basement for me. And it grew from there. I don't think I would have had the courage to be an entrepreneur and think of myself as business owner out of the gate. I wasn't one of those long-term thinkers. I was just somebody that was really good at what I did and loved it. And it grew into a successful business. And I'm incredibly proud of what I've built but recognize it wouldn't have happened without my incredible team, my husband, who's our COO, my son, Lewis who has joined us about six years ago, who's the president of our firm and the rest of our amazing team.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, that's right. When you were sitting on the floor of your bedroom launching uh, Diamond Consulting, were, were you still working as an accountant? Were you doing it part-time? Or no, was it, uh... oh God,
1: no. no, 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 no. Nope, I was all in.
0: Yeah, that's great, that's great. Well, Mindy, this has been great. I really appreciate it. Couldn't think of a better guest to do our inaugural podcast with, and and I always learn a lot when I talk to you. So I really appreciate it.
1: This podcast is sponsored by LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and member FINRA SIPC. LPL Financial is a separate entity from and not affiliated with wealthmanagement.com.